will try and step it up for those of you that care. Um, so yeah, that's that. See you in the trees. Bye. Again, uh, welcome to the Spoil Well. I've been sitting on that intro forever. I would dearly love to spoil the, the, the great TV show Twin Peaks because I've spent so much time these last few years daydreaming about it that uh, at this point it's become a kind of constant background hum like the industrial drone in a David Lynch soundtrack. Um, Needless to say, I, I have thoughts about Twin Peaks and about how everyone else in the world is wrong about Twin Peaks. So I'd, I'd relish the opportunity to really uh, dig into it, really get the uh, the forceps underneath the fingernail and, and, and pull out the, the, the meaning of Twin Peaks. But of course, I can't talk about it because um, there, are, there are actually two extant endings to the Twin Peaks story, the ending of the series and the ending of the film. And uh, both are among the greatest endings ever, but as I'm sure you are all aware, neither is in fact the ending, um, because David Lynch and Mark Frost are bringing Twin Peaks back in just over a week's time, uh, which I'm beyond excited about. So I'm not going to spoil Twin Peaks today. Uh, I just wanted uh, A, to finally use that intro, and um and B, to bring it up, because it's, it's germane to our, our subject of spoilers. Because um, when I when I used to tell pe people about the idea uh, behind this podcast, they, they usually laugh, which um, I'm glad, because it, one of the reasons I started it is it just seemed to me a funny concept. But I, I think people think that I just kind of enjoy ruining films for people, which uh, isn't true. I have a couple of friends who've been catching up on, on Twin Peaks in advance of the new series and I actually started to feel quite protective of them and, and anxious on their behalf because the closer we got to the premiere of this new series the more chance that they had of, of being spoiled uh, and we've all been in that situation where a kind of an overexcited social media post or an overheard conversation has completely given away a pivotal scene uh, you know I've, I've known of a few people who've been kind of fucked over by that youtube sidebar they go to look up the the, the the credits song of something and then you know in the recommended videos you get so and so kills so and so and you know gives away something several seasons ahead and what's worse is when a when a series is as old as twin peaks you, you don't really feel like you have a right to complain because there's a general quite fair sense that there's a, a statute of, of limitations on, on spoiler warnings for very famous shows. But Twin Peaks is a bit of a special case because it's so explicitly presented as a mystery. I mean, if you look at the, the, the new series, uh, Lynch and Frost have gone to extraordinary lengths to keep uh, almost every aspect of the production under wraps. Uh, everyone involved has signed an NDA. 
despite the sort of conventional wisdom that it's impossible to keep a secret in in the uh, internet age, nobody really knows the first thing about the content, even the basic plot of the upcoming season, uh, including most of the people who are in it, by all accounts, which is uh, which is incredible. But as I said, I'm not not going to talk about uh, Twin Peaks as much as that's always my instinct nowadays. But I do need to spoil something. So in honour of my favourite show, I'm going to talk about one of my favourite films by its co-creator, David Lynch's intensely challenging late masterpiece, Inland Empire. This one will be a bit longer than usual. So when Lynch and Frost announced that uh, the gum we liked was going to come back in style, there were those of us who were excited in kind of equal measure by the, the prospect of the return of our favourite show, and also the prospect of what amounts to a new 18-hour late-period David Lynch film. And a big reason for that excitement is this wonderful, wonderful film. Um, It's quite probably Lynch's last theatrical film. Uh, He said recently he's completely done with cinema. And, um, well, what a film to finish on, frankly. I'm very aware of the fact that that a lot of people really don't like this film. Um, I... More fans, I think. I, uh, I haven't read a lot of criticism about it, but my sense is that critics quite liked it. But uh, among sort of the general Lynch fans and cinema goers, it's probably Lynch's most divisive film since Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. And there are two main reasons for this that, that, that I can see. And the first is, um, is a question of style. This is famously Lynch's first film shot on digital video after a lifetime working with celluloid. Lynch fell in love with the the freedom afforded by digital, the ability to to shoot longer for less money. It kind of suited his increasingly improvisational style and and more pragmatically, it enabled him to actually get the thing made with limited financial backing. I think he had uh, struggled to, to, to get films made for a while. But Lynch went a bit further than that because Rather than the the pristine HD digital you might have expected, he made a deliberate choice to use a a fairly cheap standard definition consumer grade camera. Uh, So it's low res, murky, and the the colours bleed together. And the the immediate appeal of this aesthetic choice is is pretty obvious if you've ever enjoyed anything lo-fi or harsh noise, underground film, all that, that kind of stuff. Lynch's He's, he's embracing the digitalness of digital, but, but he's also kind of harking back to his early experiments with a, 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 the cheapest 16mm camera that he could get. And he, I think he also said he was, he was thinking of the films of sort of the 20s and 30s and, and the, 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 the less clear images you would get watching those. And, um, and what it also made me think of is, is I'm reading Lynch on Lynch at the moment. And the beginning of that book, he talks about in his, his early paintings that the canvas is almost entirely black. And it's, it's a subversive choice when you consider that many film buffs today, they have almost a pathological need for the, the sharpest image possible. And it is, it is an aesthetic jolt for sure, because like you're, the, way, the way we're kind of conditioned to see this kind of consumer grade digital image you're you you think you think you react to it as a, a kind of a, a home movie um but that's not what this is i mean this this isn't an amateurish kind of student project the film looks stunning um and lynch displays complete mastery a kind of 
Kubrickian attention to detail in the the every aspect of the, the cinematography, sound design, editing, mise en scène. You know, it, it's it's as painterly as as anything he's done. If you if want to use the old cliche, I would I would gladly hang almost any given frame of this film on my wall. And also, there's a very corny part of me that says there's, there's something delightful about um, people uh, knocking a, a late period David Lynch film for its uh, lack of resolution. But the second and probably bigger reason that a lot of people couldn't connect with Inland Empire is um, its sheer abstrusity. Ever since in, uh, Eraserhead, Lynch has enjoyed the position of America's kind of pet surrealist, the, the avunculus of the avant-garde this kind of genial purveyor of glorious confusion, incongruity, weirdness, and occasional absolute terror. But Inland Empire takes this to a whole other level. There are certain structures that uh, critics often reach for when they're describing Lynch's work, like the, the Merbius Strip, the Palindrome, the Russian Nesting Doll, the Hall of Mirrors or Mise en Abîme, uh, most fittingly, most Borgesian, the, the labyrinth, um, and some of the above actually show up in Lynch's work. But none of these really does justice to the, the shifting temporal and, and fictive planes of Inland Empire, what the late Mark Fisher called its involutions and convolutions. Um, it's by some distance the film of Lynch's least anchored by narrative convention. It's long, even by Lynch standards. It's slow, even by Lynch standards. It was shot over four years without a script or even a clear idea of where the narrative would be headed. And it, it cannibalises a couple of other projects that Lynch had worked on around that time. And it kind of challenges the viewer to put all the pieces together. And uh, crucially, I think, it's it's relatively lacking in the kind of offbeat humour that people come to expect from Lynch. I think that people are kind of much more willing to accept all manner of experimentation as long as there's a bit of humour. It makes people feel like they're in on something. And without that inclusivity, people feel that maybe the the joke is on them or, you know, that self-seriousness equals self-indulgence. And there is some humour here, but but in general, there's a kind of... The mood is this kind of sustained intensity that you, you you see in Lynch, maybe only in Fire Walk With Me, the first half hour of the, 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 the Twin Peaks pilot, but not really elsewhere to this level. So, uh, what's Inland Empire about? It's about an actress, Nikki Grace, played by Laura Dern, who lands a role in a film called On High in Blue Tomorrows and uh, finds herself getting romantically involved with her co-star, uh, played by Justin Theroux, and, um, well, who can blame either of them? Uh, the film's director, Jeremy Irons, uh, tells the two leads that the film is a remake of a Polish film whose stars were murdered before the project could be finished, and intimates that the script or story itself may be either cursed or haunted. Uh, and Nikki starts to experience these slippages between the actual world and the world of the film, quite literally losing herself in her character, Susan Blue. And then things get weird. Uh, She wanders into the part of the film set called Smithy's House, uh, obviously a reference to Alan Smithy, the Hollywood legend responsible for the TV cut of Dune, among other things. And um, from that point on is lost in this not so fun fun house, moving between settings and identities with a disturbing lack of agency. So it's suburban L.A., it's a seedy Hollywood neighbourhood, a creepy interior, a creepier interior, 
she's Nikki, she's Sue, she's someone else, someone else again, and we're right with her for the whole nightmare. Uh, and to further confuse things, this narrative is disrupted by other narratives, including a Brechtian rabbit sitcom, a Polish radio drama, uh, a Polish kind of, I don't know, uh, industrial period noir that might be this radio drama or might be the original film, uh, The Ghost of Sunset Boulevard, and a lost girl in a hotel room watching the film Inland Empire. Uh, and Harry Dean Stanton's in it, and William H. Macy's in it, and Mary Steenburgen is in it. There's the very familiar Lynchian kind of catalyst figure of this mysterious and openly hostile interlocutor. Um, if you think the cowboy mystery man, that, that type. Um, in this case, it's a visitor played by the sublimely spooky Grace Zabriskie. Other, other kind of Lynchian touchstones, there's the romantic love that somehow become infected by paranoia and jealousy. There are the enigmatic repeated phrases, talismanic objects, sources of illumination and colours, all imbued with a sense of deep but elusive significance. Notice appearances of the red lampshade. Always notice appearances of the red lampshade. Um, in all seriousness, I'm, I'm not going to offer an exegesis here. Uh, rest assured, I do have the one true interpretation of this and all other Lynch films. But uh, this is all I am permitted to say. Uh, so I'm just going to talk about my way and how I fell in love with this film. And I will tell you three things. First and foremost, Laura fucking Dern. Uh, for a film about the magic and the danger of acting, Dern delivers one of the most vital performances I've ever seen in a film. Uh, as with uh, Cheryl Lee in Lynch's other masterpiece, Fire Walk With Me, she's what makes the film watchable and also what makes it hard to watch. I mean, barring the, the kind of weird cutaways to, to her possible surrogates and the, and the rabbit thing, we are we really are with her for this whole thing and, and often she's she's shot in really long takes extreme close-ups with grotesque wide-angle lenses um but i am here for laura dern she is so good there are scenes in this where she just she looks absolutely stricken and almost free of context i feel like one of the people watching the the, the lumiere's train arrive at the station in 1895 like i need to get out of the way because she's going to kind of confer an anxiety attack on me through the screen. And um, there's things like when she's, she, there's a recurring scene where she's playing one of the versions of herself who, who might be Sue Blue. And on the surface, it's this kind of very two-dimensional kind of tough gal cliche. So she's kind of sneering, sniffing, drawling. You know, this it's this kind of, I was screwing a couple of guys for drinks, no big deal, that kind of thing. And but she's so damn good. She she puts so much in between the lines, even when she's playing quite broad. That it's 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 like the the audition scene in Mulholland Drive. It's that sort of transformative uh, power, and and she goes through so many modes in this film, like dignity, complete self abnegation, terror, hatred, confusion. It it. Probably the, the absolute pinnacle of, of Lynch's fractured identity narratives is there's a part in this 
where she sort of plays her own tormentor, uh, not in not in like a Gollum Smeagol type way, but she she kind of mocks her own terror while at the same time clearly feeling it. It's this it's this kind of level of multivalence that you you rarely see, and it's it's one of the few genuinely dizzying moments in this film. Um, the second thing is is a bit it's a bit harder for me to express, but it's it's something that clicked into place for me while I was uh, sort of daydreaming about a, a particular scene in Twin Peaks, and and I'm sure it's a very obvious thing that everyone else realised a long time ago, but it's it's something about the way Lynch works in terms of narrative, which um which is supposed to be the the subject of this podcast after all. Um, so the, the best way I can express it is 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 through this concept of diffusion. So people always talk about how Lynch works like a painter, using colour and mood and emotion and music in a way that, that takes precedence over um, plot mechanics and, and, and conventional character development. But it seems to me that it isn't that the narrative and character development is ignored in favour of these things, but that things like characters, events, actions, identities and locations, things that you would expect to be discrete are diffuse in the way that mood, light, atmosphere are. So, and this kind of makes a, a bit of um, sense of, of, of the kind of temporal paradoxes that you get in Lynch, where a traumatic incident doesn't simply occupy a fixed point, but it, it spreads out and, and colours the scenes that surround it in, in the way that one bad thought can cast a shadow on an otherwise innocuous dream or drug trip. And so that famous line, it is happening again, could as well be, it is still happening. So what happens at the end of Inland Empire? Um, well, it, it's a bit like, sorry, second Lord of the Rings reference. It's a bit like that last Lord of the Rings film in that it has like a, a 40 minute ending. So Nikki is dying on Hollywood Boulevard from a, a screwdriver stab wound that we've seen echoing through the narrative in the, in the previous couple of hours. And um, as she bleeds out and she's vomiting blood, it's really upsetting. A, a group of homeless people sit around her and argue about the, the Los Angeles transit system, which quite naturally leads to an extraordinary monologue from one of the homeless women about a, a beautiful actress turned prostitute and drug addict who's nearing the end of her life and who has experienced an, an insult to the boundary between her reproductive and digestive systems that takes us closer to the headspace of a razor head than we've been probably since. Another homeless woman kind of guides Nikki into death with the aid of a cigarette lighter and promises her no more blue tomorrows. And just as she fades away, the director yells cut and the camera pulls back to reveal a film camera and the set is dismantled and everyone applauds as the film wraps. And it's this amazing thing with the realities of failure, homelessness, drug abuse, prostitution, unpayable medical bills, violence and death fade away into Hollywood fantasy. And through her talent and creativity, Nikki has come through and she's herself again. But as she gets up, you, you can see in her face that, that, that she's kind of still in it. it was, it's, 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 for me, has a significance as a particularly terrifying thing. It was, it was a false awakening. And um, and there's still half an hour left of the film. There's still 
a lot of a lot of corridors to walk through and staircases to climb. So the third thing, um, many people have pointed out that as, as as dark as Lynch's films get, with a few quote, notable exceptions, they tend to have happy endings. And um, without going too much into it, because I'm sure I'll do a, an episode about all of them eventually, they often have the same happy ending with, with this often abrupt appearance of a kind of ecstatic vision uh, which which makes everything kind of all right in heaven, everything is fine. And in the earlier films especially, people people tended to assume that these are ironic. Um, but it gets harder and harder to argue that as his career goes on. Certainly by the time you get to something like The Straight Story, there's, there's, there's no way to really see it as, as being in any way kind of ironic. Um, and it's worth mentioning that, that Lynch apparently told Martha Nockimson that in, in the case of one of those notable exceptions, the only reason things appear to end badly for the protagonist is that we stop following their story. And had we continued along the path for a bit longer, we would have seen one of those kind of beatific uh, endings that we get in most other Lynch films. This optimism, I think, is key to understanding where Lynch is coming from. It, it's always worth remembering that Lynch is a religious man. And uh, one of the things he believes in most is oneness. And, and one of the things he regards as most troubling, uh, conversely, is, is disunity. And um, in Inland Empire, more than in any other of his late work, I think, you really get the strong sense that the, 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 the Lynchian repressed truth that disrupts, unmoors and fragments the protagonist's reality, it's not a memory. It's not a, an infidelity or a murder or a rape or a childhood abuse or, or even simply the, the, or the death of a child or, or, or even simply the, the, the stifled creativity of a film production halted by outside forces. Or it may well be one or all of these things, but primarily it's an aspect or aspects of herself that she's been unable to resolve into her infinite self. Only when we are everywhere, as the log lady said, Will there be just one? Uh, at the climax of this film, Nikki shoots dead the awful creature known as the Phantom, shown terrifyingly to be a warped image of herself, and she frees the lost girl in her hotel room with, with a kiss. It's real fairy tale stuff. Uh, Nikki disappears, uh, the lost girl is reunited with her husband and child, and Nikki is back in her palatial mansion looking like a queen. And clearly the, the, the significance of all this is open to question after question after question. But the emotional resonance for me, as it plays out with that gorgeous uh, Christabel song playing, I'm just a wreck every time. It may have taken death to get her there, but Nikki is finally just one. But that is still not the end, because David Lynch is a very generous man. Uh, so I have one more thing to tell you. Let's talk about music. Music is very important to Lynch, and it's very important to me. And Inland Empire starts with a close-up of a vinyl record, and it contains some of the best musical moments of Lynch's career, and I think film history, with no exaggeration. In, in keeping with the Polish theme, there is peerless deployment of Penderecki throughout, don't at me, Kubrick fans, but I do mean peerless. Uh, you also get uh, Etta James, 
the aforementioned Krista Bell. Beck, for God's sake, is on the soundtrack to this, and it's amazing. Uh, it, there's even a song sung by Lynch himself. But two moments really stand out for me. And uh, one is, so there's a group of women in Smithy's house. They might be prostitutes. They might be uh, Devon's former lovers or former co-stars, kind of projected by a paranoid Nikki. Um, sometimes they, they frighten or, or confuse her. And sometimes they, they comfort or console her. And there's a, there's a, a lovely kind of... Um, Kind of sense of mutual uh, support between them at, at, at times. Um, anyway, in this scene, they're, they're kind of languidly lolling about in this room, smoking, and then suddenly there's a, there's a there's a jump cut um, or a smash cut or whatever you call it to uh, to to all of the girls in the middle of the room doing this highly choreographed and staged dance to to Little Eva's "The Locomotion" while strobe lights flash. And uh, this only lasts about 30 seconds before it's cut off mid-sequence and the room is suddenly empty. And it's, it's, it's hilarious and it's weird, but there's, there's something in the way that Lynch edits it. It's, it's hard to explain. It feels, it feels kind of vertiginous to me. It's like my, my stomach flutters when I watch it. It's just, it's just so good. I don't know, how could anyone not love this film? Um, but the second great musical moment is this ending. Which, uh, which plays over the closing credits. So we're in this large room. Uh, Nikki's there, as are the, the women mentioned in the homeless woman's monologue. There's a man sawing wood. And, uh, and Laura Haring from Mulholland Drive and N Natasha Kinski making a special uh, appearance is, is there. And uh, everyone looks happy. And uh, also there are a group of dancers who, who dance and lip-sync to the full 10 minutes of uh, Nina Simone's recording of, of Cinnaman, one of the greatest pieces of music ever recorded, as the camera roves around and, and, and kind of says hello to, to, to all its friends. And there's a, there's a classic Laura Dern anecdote about this scene, which involves David Lynch saying to a production assistant, I need a one-legged woman, a monkey and a lumberjack by 3pm. And the, the assistant being like, is he serious? And Dern being like, well, it's Lynch, baby. Um, but what this ending is, is, is a kind of transcendent Lynchian version of those endings that you would get in, in 80s comedies like Scrooged, where the, the cast break the fourth wall and just kind of goof off singing and dancing to a pop song. And this, this kind of ending um, famously was revived in a big way by Shrek. Uh, I don't know if, if David Lynch ever saw Shrek, but th there is a lot of green in this film. Um, so that might be the, the secret significance of that. In any case, if this really is Lynch's final film, ending this maddening, gut-wrenching masterpiece with this lovely music video is, is just the best victory lap you could, you could ask for. As Jacques Rivette said about A Fire Walk With Me, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea what I saw. All I know is that I left the theatre floating six feet above the ground. Amen. Um, yeah, so that's the end of Inland Empire. Half an hour is quite a, a long time to, to talk to yourself, but really, I, I haven't even scratched the surface of, of this. So if you, if you haven't seen it, watch it. And if you've seen it and didn't like it, as Sordid Cinema's excellent Twin Peaks po podcast, The Lodgers, recently put it, watch it again and keep watching it until you like it. 
So just before I wrap up, uh, guys, I know I've been putting these out at a, a pace that's practically Lynchian in itself. Uh, so I, I started doing these around the same time that I started recovery. And, and part of my reason for doing them was, was, was wrapped up in that kind of therapeutic process. So given that I haven't done one in, in months, you can probably guess how all of that was going. Um, without going too far into, into TMI territory, I am, I am back in the game now and I, I will try and step it up for those of you that care. Um, so yeah, that's that. See you in the trees. Bye.